Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 297. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What weather? Hey, it's about time, mind you. There was a few about a week ago where it was all planned for this fantastic weather in the northeast of England had none of it and I was so desperate to kind of try and find just a little bit. But here it's, it's here there now and it is fantastic. So if everyone around the world there is having a nice day, good on you. If you've got a little bit bad weather, a little bit too hot or a bit too cold weather, then can we thoughts go with you? We've had it cold and wet for so long there now, so I'm appreciating a little bit of sunshine. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Synthetic Voices with Jimmy Rogers telling you all about the new shows and stories that are out there in the podcasting world. Then the main fiction is Walking Stick Fires by Alan De Niro. New writer we've had on the show, new writer to the show of Starship Sofa. Listen out for that one. And it's narrated by Logan Waterman. So that is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Just before we get in, just, you know, again, just to say hello. And don't forget, SovaCon tickets are on sale there. We've all got a few left. And it goes on the 28th of July, as if you didn't know that. And, you know, we're kind of counting down the days there now. So looking forward to that. One thing after SovaCon, which, like I've just mentioned there, the 28th, after that, I'm going to go on my happy holidays. So we kind of basically shore leave for Starship Sova. So it's round about two or three weeks. I'm not exactly sure yet where we'll be powering down the engines for a little annual break there. So I can kind of, you know, bathe, bathe this body in the sun of a Menorcan holiday. <laughs> so there'll be lots of margaritas and food. So yes, so beginning of August for about two, three weeks, see how it goes. We'll kind of put it, put this Starships over on holes. Let you just catch up if you're kind of a few shows behind anyways. Don't forget, 
Still, though, you know what I mean, donations, if you want to kind of, you know, donate. A big thank you to a couple of people who's donated some one-offs just over the last week. Thank you so much. If you want to donate kind of monthly, that would be fantastic. That's the bedrock. Keeps the old girl going. Please think about that. You get them two products free as well there. Now you get the original, I mean, Kieran Starship's over originals, them 100 shows. Then you get the, what, the Joe Haldeman, How to Write Science Fiction Lecture as well so that would be nice so there you go that's the news now let's get in the first fact article jimmy rogers sci- scientific synthetic voices jim hello again sophonauts i'm jimmy rogers and this is synthetic voices each month i comb through as many free speculative audio fiction stories as i can find and share my favorites here with you. Last month, nobody sent any suggestions for our new shipboard location, so I'm making the executive decision and setting up my podcast listening station in the Starship Sofa Galley. So grab yourself a sandwich, dispense a cup of joe for yourself, or Cookie will make you up a latte if you tell him I sent you, and plunk yourself down at my table. I'm always here, ready to recommend new stories from the farthest reaches of the potosphere. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into the top picks from June 2013. First up is The Penitent by M. Bernardo. This was featured on Beneath Ceaseless Skies, episode 106, and was about 30 minutes long. This story of a nameless prisoner will take you into a dark rabbit hole. Finding his cell door unlocked, the long-isolated prisoner finds the outside world incredibly different from what he expected. I found myself rooting for him, hoping his sanity would last the length of the story. While not all of your questions may be answered, I expect you'll find the ending as unsettling as I did. This one was a little out of character for the traditionally sword-and-sorcery-themed Beneath Ceaseless Skies, but I enjoyed it, and I hope this story heralds a more unpredictable menu of stories from the magazine. Next up is The Tale of the Golden Eagle by David D. Levine. It was featured in Escape Pod, episode 402, and was about 50 minutes long. This was a lovely story. I'd like to call it space fantasy, with a bit of science fiction thrown in for authenticity. For example, interstellar ships piloted by cybernetic birds. The description of these ships is really beautifully done. On top of that, there is a bit of epic storytelling, a wonderful gambling scene, and an ending that I personally found quite satisfying. Another great story from last month was The Urashima Effect by E. Lily Yu. It was featured in Clark's World Magazine's June issue and was about 30 minutes long. I've always enjoyed the conundrum of what to do while waiting around in a sleep ship, that is, a ship where the occupants are put to sleep for an extended period of travel. In this story, our sole passenger awakes ahead of landing in order to fully recover from sleep and begins paging through pre-recorded messages from home. In those messages, he discovers a shocking truth about the nature of his voyage. The psychological action of the story takes a little while to get going, but I think you'll discover that all the pieces eventually weave together into a massive decision for our lonely sojourner. The next story on my list is Turning Point by Paul Anderson. This was featured on the Drabblecast, episode 284, and was about 40 minutes long. 
Here, through the eyes of a few explorers, we meet an alien race on their home planet. They turn out to be quite adept at our language, and it seems that the more the explorers learn about the clever but simple race, the more unsettling they become. There are no secrets with these alien people, but there is a frightening realization and a subsequent devious plan on the part of the humans. I'll leave you to judge the ethics of our protagonist's actions. Next is Neighborhood Watch by Greg Egan. It was featured on Pseudopod, episode 340, and was about 55 minutes long. As soon as I heard this story, I knew it would be a top pick this month. First of all, the narration by Ron John Newton was fantastic, beautifully capturing the essence of an instinct-driven villain. The writing, too, is spectacular, weaving in and out of various scenes easily. To sum up as much as I dare, the story follows a monster who lives underground in a planned community. There is a deadly deal, an overconfident homeowners association diva, and an irascible little boy. This story has a lot going for it already, and I guarantee there's more in store. My final top pick this month is Dead Men Walking by Paul J. McCauley. It was featured in Clark's World Magazine's June issue and was about 50 minutes long. Sleeper agents, secret assassins, and subterfuge abound in this far future story. Many stories ask, what would you do if you found out you were a sleeper agent? Well, this one dispenses with that, instead asking, what is it like to have always known you were a sleeper agent? And what will you do after your mission is complete? It's a smart story, and while I found the nonlinear organization a bit taxing, it was done with purpose, and I found the ideas at work in the fictional world kept me interested through the ending. This month, my correspondences with esteemed podcasters taught me one lesson. Even esteemed podcasters don't get a regular dose of good on ya as often as they should. I'm sure you all have favorite podcasts. You may occasionally comment on their forums, or send them a nice note here and there. But what about the other podcasts, the up-and-comers who don't get as much love as they ought to? Or have you long taken a successful podcast for granted, assuming they get lots of fan mail? Well, I say take ten minutes and send a nice note to an underappreciated podcast. That is your task this month. Now go out into the world and laud praise upon those hard-working narrators and editors. Our first feature section this month is Several Stories to Make You Think. I found all three of these stories extremely thought-provoking, and quite good as well. The first featured story is The Problem of Cell 13 by Jacques Futrell. It was featured in Protecting Project Pulp, episode 48, and was about an hour and 20 minutes long. I'll start out with a disclaimer on this one. It's perhaps a bit too long, and not for everybody. I enjoy a good old-fashioned locked room mystery, and while the protagonist is a bit on the arrogant side, it proved to be an interesting brain teaser. In essence, a famously genius gentleman accepts a bet to break out of a maximum security prison cell. Once he's securely locked up, there's nothing left to do but try to guess his means of egress, which is sure to surprise. The next featured story is Better Phones by Grant Stone. It was featured in Starship Sofa, episode 293, and was about 20 minutes long. This short piece piqued my interest immediately, 
because of the sparse details given to the reader. In it, a group of neighborhood runners are regularly pestered by a group of hyper-athletic, phone-disrupting aliens. The plot unfolds once one of the aliens is injured, and our human protagonist must decide how best to handle the situation. While there are few surprises, I enjoyed the subtle drama that plays out at the end. The final featured story in this section is Get a Grip by Paul Park. It was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's June issue and was about 30 minutes long. I don't want to give away too much about this one, but this story blindsided me several times with its sharp twists and turns. In fact, I'm not even sure where things shook out in the end. Ask yourself this, though. If parts of your life weren't true, would you want to know which? Now about a book. I am certainly a bit late to the party on this one, but I have just discovered the Machine of Death anthology, edited by Ryan North, Matthew Bernardo, and David Malky. In truth, I first heard of the project back on Duotrope as I was figuring out where to send my fiction, but at the time the Duotrope listing was quite poor, and I didn't really get the genius of this project. I'll try to make up for that here. Essentially, the book now completely narrated and available in podcast form for free, is an anthology of different writers' takes on a similar prompt. What if there was a machine that could tell you how you were going to die with absolute accuracy? What if those predictions were Spartan statements of fact with no context, time, date, or even coherency? The results of this experiment have been phenomenal, and I can't wait to listen to the second book, This Is How You Die, coming out in print on July 16th. There's also a fun-looking card game you can buy right now. I recommend listening to all the stories in the first book, in the order they appear on the podcast, but if you don't have time or you need to be convinced, I recommend Torn Apart and Devoured by Lions. Oh, and P.S., yes, that's the same M. Bernardo from the earlier mentioned The Penitent at Beneath Ceaseless Skies. He's quite a talented fellow, no? Our final feature section this month is A Lovecraftian Love Fest. The first story is The Nameless City by H.P. Lovecraft. It was featured in Protecting Project Pulp, episode 50, and was about 30 minutes long. As a fan of Lovecraft's fictitious places and books, I really enjoyed this story. While by modern horror standards, the protagonist exploring the Eldritch City comes off as a little too naive, it was interesting to follow his solo investigation of the nameless city and see what evil he stumbled upon. The next story is The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft, once again. It was featured in Protecting Project Pulp, episode 47, and was about an hour long. If you're a Lovecraft fan, you've likely already read this one the Rats in the Walls being one of his most famous works. But my Lovecraftian education is just beginning, so it was a first reading for me. I have to admit I didn't love this story as much as I expected, but that may be because this one has a certain density to it that likely deserves further study. The next story is Fishwife by Carrie Vaughn. It was featured in Nightmare Magazine's June issue and was about 30 minutes long. As Lovecraft's works were all published some time ago, in the appropriate language for the time, I found some of my favorite stories are those merely Lovecraftian, having been penned by authors in a sort of homage in modern times. 
Here, Vaughn's story of a village's gradual descent into murder and alien bargains may remind you of a story mentioned last month, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. While not a direct retelling, your Deep Ones detector should start going off shortly after the tale begins. Our final feature story this month is The Derelict by William Hope Hodgson. It was featured in SFF Audio Podcast, episode 219, and was about 2 hours and 18 minutes long, including the discussion afterward. I include this story knowing full well that William Hope Hodgson is not H.P. Lovecraft. Even so, there is a similar vibe throughout, and the story has a beautiful description of the mystery of finding a derelict floating upon the open sea. It is another long one, running about an hour and a half, and certainly will not keep the interest of the modern reader. Even so, I broke it up into a few sessions and made it through. Plus, the discussion at the end about Hodgson's life and death are really quite interesting. Good work, SFF Audio crew. Well, that just about does it for Synthetic Voices this month. Remember to support your favorite audio fiction podcasts, including Starship Sofa, of course, with either one-time or monthly subscriptions. All of the music used in this episode is distributed under an extensive series of Creative Commons licenses, which you can find along with the show notes over at scienceismagic.com. If you'd like to subscribe to the dedicated feed, search for Synthetic Voices on iTunes. You can leave a review, too, if you like. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. There you go. I've got a link on to that little link what Jimmy's give us there, so you can pop over to Synthetic Voices and check out everything there that Jimmy's taught about. A big thank you to kind of mention and protecting Project Pulp as well. Simon's chuffed a bit that we've got some mentions on that. So, Jimmy, thank you very much. Look forward to next month's. Next up is Walking Stick Fires by Alan De Niro. I'll give you a little heads up about Alan De Niro. Alan gr- grew up in Air, Pennsylvania, and went to school at the College of Worcester and the University of Virginia. A short story collection, Skinny Dipping in the Lake of the Dead, was published in 2006 by Small Beer Press and was a finalist for the Crawford Award. His first novel, Total Oblivion, more or less, came out in 2009 from Ballantine Spectre. He currently lives outside St. Paul with his wife, Christine, and two dogs and two cats. And I, I tell you what, straight away, you, you know what I mean? You kind of get switched on to Alan's work there. You know, just the names of his stories and books, Skinny Dipping in the Lake of the Dead. <laughs> that's just fantastic. And Total Oblivion, more or less. Alan, that's fantastic. This story... First came out in Asimov's in June 2011, which, you know, as we know, edited by Sheila Williams. It was also up for the year's best science fiction and fantasy 2012, which was edited by Rich Horton for Prime Books. Give you a little, you know, if you want to kind of get into Alan and Alan's fiction and stuff like that. Skinny Dipping in the Lake of the Dead came out in 1999, a short story. So there is a short story called that. His very last one was Space Cougar in 2012. He's also had The Flowering Ape, came out in 2012. Like I say, Woken Stick Fires. Lots of stories, so it'll be quite a nice to... Maybe we'll try and sneak a few more off, Alan, as well. Alan, thank you so much for this. This story is narrated by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theatre from California State University and has worked in many theatres, large and small, professional and amateur. 
He's also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He's taught sword... I'm <laughs> man. You've done everything, man. He's, he's taught sword fighting for the stage and rode lights for a local band until it broke up. He currently works tangibly, he says, for the legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts, and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes to make a bit of money from voice acting and narration someday. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping and stalking the fishing aquarium. And Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish remain unimpressed. Logan, you're a star. Thank you so much. Great narration, by the way. Honestly, really good. Thank you. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Walking Stick Fires by Alan De Niro On All Hallows' Eve Eve, Parkas sat on his motorcycle in the unending desert. The moon was low-hanging fruit. The blue fires of Casino were far off in the distance to the north. Parker pulled an apple out of his jacket pocket, cut it in half with his claw, and offered half to his fellow traveler, Jar. The apple has a pleasing scent, Jar said before he ate it, crushing the apple into pulp with his mandibles. I would have to agree, Parker said. Where did you procure it? In a house outside of Casino. He indicated the blazing pyramids and monoliths with his claw. Two days ago. I forgot I had it. There it was, sitting on the kitchen table, red and perfect. When he finished eating the apple, Parka brushed a posse of stick insects that landed on his shoulders. Hey, cool, walking sticks, Jar said, brushing them off Parka's jacket. Is that what the locals call them? I just don't know where these bugs come from, Parka said. They are everywhere, Jar said, cleaning his mandibles with his fingers afterward. Parka watched the stick insects rattle on the hard desert ground. All right. Parker said, kicking his motorcycle to life. The reactors shot into clutch for a second and then hummed. Jar followed with his. Santa Fe, then? They are expecting us. Parker patted his satchel, the one containing the amulet of ruby webs, which he'd extracted from Casino at great cost. Yes, they are. I do not expect traffic or to encounter those we disposed of. Parker was thinking of the worm hairs. Not under the mountains. Nope. Parker leaned forward and his bike shot ahead. Jar soon followed. After they broke the sound barrier, Parker put on his headphones. He liked Toby Keith. In the great tunnel underneath the mountains, they stopped at a rest stop. They hydrated and Jar sulfurized his joints. There were a couple of other travelers at the rest stop. Others sped by on their motorcycles and flaming chariots. Every once in a while, there would be a rumbling sound that would shake the wire grating of the low roof and send dust to the ground. Once there was a low growl far above, like a brain gun backfiring. "'What's that?' Jar asked once. "'Taus,' Parkas said, not looking up from his hammock in his well-thumbed copy of the Toby Keith Review. "'Ah,' Jar said, going back to his sour acupuncture. The human child, who was indentured to the rest stop, looked up from his abacus. He had a name tag that said, "'Sharon.' "'They've been going like that for a fortnight.' The Black Rooster Company is finally yielding their fortress against the Azelian gullet. But the two couriers ignored him. Blushing, the child went back to his figures. Say, Parker said, what are you going to be for All Hallows' Eve? Jar pulled the needle from his spine and blew on the tip. I was thinking Jack Nicholas. Really? 
I love as good as it gets. Three of Jar's eyelids quivered as a sign of confusion and then mild amusement. No, not the actor, the golfer. Parker raised his eyebrows. Really? Do you golf? Jar shrugged. Who are you going to be? Dwight D. Eisenhower, Parker said without any hesitation. Really? I love World War II. It took Parker a few seconds to realize Jar was being a sarcastic mimic. <sighs> Parker sighed. But seriously, Jar said, perhaps sensing Parker's exasperation. I would have sworn you'd be one of the indigenous musicians. Jar pointed to the cover of the Toby Keith Review, in which Toby was performing his moonslave cage for various being seneschals. I'm not quite so easily typecast, friend, Parker said. Not quite so easily in one box or another. I have a lot of interests. Uh-huh, Jar said. Anyway... Parka said, wanting to change the subject a bit. It doesn't matter if we can't make Santa Fe by tomorrow. Ha ha, Jar said. Don't worry, we're in the slow season. We're deep underground. The winds of war are incapable of blowing upon our faces. I am not quite so sanguine, Parka said, closing his magazine and hopping off the hammock. We should go. So soon, Jar said. I still need to sanitize my needles. He held a glinting needle out. The tip wavered. Parker was going to say something clever and lewd, but the sound of approaching caravan drowned out any coherent thought. Three motorcycles and a black Camaro. They were slowing down and resting at the rest stop. Hey! Jar! Park shouted before the caravan stopped. Jar looked over. It was a caravan of casino dwellers, all worm hairs. Ugh, Parker said. Like I said, let's go. Hey! the prime worm hare said, slithering out of the Camaro. It was too late. Hey! What? Parker called out. The other worm hares had hopped off their motorcycles and were massing together. The prime pointed at the amulet of ruby webs that was half hidden in Jar's satchel. I believe you have something of ours, he said. It's not yours anymore, Jar said. So you should have said, I believe you have something of yours. Parker had to shake his head at this. Even in danger, he had trouble not to break out laughing. This, at least, gave them a couple of seconds while the worm hairs tried to parse this out. The amulet of ruby webs is a sacred symbol of our community through many generations and systems, the Prime said. Well, it's your own damn fault you brought it down from orbit, then. The Prime paused. The other worm hairs were getting antsy, stroking their floppy ears with tentacles. They likely surmised that Parka and Jar would be difficult to slay in close-quarters combat. Or perhaps they were worried about damaging the amulet. "'How about we race for it?' the Prime said brightly. "'Nah, you can't have a good race in the tunnel, and you know that,' Parka said. "'Hmm. I will kickbox you for it, though.' All of the worm hairs laughed as one. <laughs> "'Seriously?' the Prime said. "'Um, okay, sure.' Great. If I win, you'll have to leave us alone, and... Parker thought about it. Give up driving your Camaro for a year. No, wait, you'll have to give it to him. He pointed to the human child. Ah, yeah, that's right. You ready? The Prime nodded and smiled, then grew grim. But listen, hey, I'm being serious here. Whatever you do, do not, do not 
touch the red button at the center of the amulet of ruby webs, okay? Yeah, don't worry, Parker said dismissively. I'm no amateurish idiot. Fair enough, said the Prime. I am going to enjoy kicking your ass. The residents of Casino were known for... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Their kickboxing prowess. And the worm hairs learned such local arts after they followed beings down to the surface. You sure about this? Jar said to Parka, putting his hand on Parka's shoulder as he was doing stretches. Not really, he said. But this is the only way they'll stay off our ass. So we can make it to Hollow's Eve. Right. Hey, look at that kid's face, Jar nodded. Parka looked over. The face was beginning to fill with walking sticks. Circling the neck, darting down the cheeks... The child was fearful, but he was unable to brush the insects off because of the chains. What is with that? Parkas said as he stepped into the makeshift kickboxing ring, an enclosure of worm hair motorcycles. Seriously, do any of you know what is going on with those insects? He pointed to the humans. None of the worm hairs paid Parka any mind. The Prime took off his leather jacket and Parka did the same. Then the worm hairs, and Jar too for that matter, counted down to ten, and the kickboxing match began. Parker then entered a trance-like state without his consent or volition. When he stepped out of it, the prime worm hair was sprawled on the asphalt, his head twisted backwards, tentacles twitching here and there. Wow, Char said. What happened? I have no idea, Parker said. What did happen? He tried to kick your face, but you spun away. Then you kicked his face. Oh, Parker felt a few walking sticks scurry and drop off his shoulders, which felt sore. He didn't realize they'd landed on him. The other worm hairs were motionless and scared. As Parker and Jar drove away, they noticed the human child's body was entirely covered in the walking sticks. Parker tried to make eye contact as a way of saying, Hey, Camaro's yours. Hope you get to drive it someday. But there were no eyes visible to connect with. A few hours later in the tunnel, they had to stop again. Flashing lights and a tall human woman wearing a sandwich board. Bypass, the woman said. 
Oh, for the love of God, Parkas said. Cave in, the woman elaborated. She also had a name tag that said, Sharon. You'll have to go to the surface. You think? Parkas said. Hey, she's just doing her job, Jar said. I know that, Jar, Parkas said. And don't lecture me like I'm some kind of phobe. I mean, I'm the one who gave a chimera to a human child. I'm a friend of these people, believe me. Whatever you say, Jar muttered. Shoot, Parkas said, trying to focus. Let's see, we're about three hours away from Santa Fe by tunnel, but who knows now. Is it hot on the surface? The woman was about to say something, but she was drowned out by a quaking roar from above, then by a series of blossoming explosions. Well, I guess that answers your question, Jar said. Okay, Parkas said, I hate this, we're going to miss Hallow's Eve. Stop whining, Jar said. The amulet's the important thing, remember? Priorities? I wish I had more apples, Parker muttered, revving his motorcycle and easing into the detour that the woman directed him to. He meant to ask her about the walking sticks. Parker and Jar's motorcycles climbed to the surface. The surface was full of bright light and wispy ash was in the air. The couriers were in the desert foothills. An old being was hunkered down, sprawling in the desert. Eagle Falcon drones, it was hard to tell what mercenary company they were attached to, swooped, bombed, and soared away from the being. Parka and Jar stopped and essayed the narrow road ahead, where the road stopped. Ugh, Parka said. The being's in the way. Yeah. The being ate mountains. Finishing those, the being would move to the badlands and mesas. Sparks shot off its translucent, slimy fur as it swept its mammoth pseudopods across sheep farms and little casinos. There were kites on stiff strings protruding from its upper reaches. When the beings had landed on a planet and sucked out the nitrogen, galactic civilization would follow. After a few years, the beings would be full and then calcify, leaving several seedling beings in their wake, who would then transport themselves to new systems. And then the residue of the being's wake could be properly and safely mined. The residue powered the vast interstellar transmutation ships. Until that time, there would be war around the perimeters of the beings, dozens of mercenary guilds and free companies jostling for position. There's no way we can drive around it? Jar asked. Too many gullies. Barker put on his telescopic sunglasses and squinted at the being. Well, it's possible to... No. What? Jar said. Tell me. More ships screamed above them. Fast eagle merlins that carpet-bombed a trench right in front of the being. Prisms trailed the bomb's wake. Counterfire from the trench screamed upward. We'll jump over the being, Parkas said. Jar started laughing so much that sulfur tears ran streaming out of his ducts, splashing upon his upholstery. Wither the ramp, friend, wither the ramp. What, you can't do a wheelie? No, I've I've never tried. And where did you learn to ride again? Jar paused. On the ship? Hell, no wonder. You have to learn on the surface. I learned in Tennessee before it's flattening. Everyone wheelied. Well, anyway, it's easy. You just have to utilize the booster with the correct timing. You want to practice? Now I'll watch you first. Are you scared? Yeah. Parker leaned forward and put a claw on Jar's carapace. Well, don't be. Okay. Let me make my approach.
Parker put his motorcycle in reverse, about a half a kilometer, and considered his approach. Licking his lips, Jar crossed his arms and looked back and forth from the being to Parka. The being began humming, with resonance of local accordion noises. Parker leaned forward, kicked his motorcycle on, and then he roared forward, shooting past Jar in an instant. Then Jar turned on his motorcycle as well and revved, and soon enough was a few lengths behind Parka. No, Jar! Parka shouted, looking behind him. But there was no way for Jar to hear him, both traveling at the speed of sound. The being was before them. Through its diaphanous surface, Parker could see about a thousand humans, and also four hundred birds of various types, five herds of cattle, a parking lot of used cars, several giant tractors, many boulders, reprocessed mountains, broken casinos, and a few off-worlders who were too stupid to get out of the way. Parker hunkered down, wheelied, and hit the booster. He soared, gaining clearance by a few meters over the being. There were white kites protruding from the gelatinous skin of the being. The kite strings punctured the surface and spooled far below. The Eagle Falcon's bombs had accidentally scarred the being in many places, but they weren't able to break through the surface. When the booster gave out, Parker held out his arms and leaned forward, just clearing the being. He skidded to a halt and spun his motorcycle around, watching Jar. Jar had accelerated too late, and he seemed to hang over the being, suspended like one of the Eagle Falcons. Jar gave a thumbs-up sign. Then one of the kites snapped to life and whipped at one of his legs, the thread tangling around the limb. Jar careened forward and separated from his cycle, which slammed against the surface of the being's skin, booster still on, and ricocheted upward. With the booster still going at full capacity, the motorcycle slammed into the wings of one of the low-flying Faust Eagle Merlins that was overhead. The Eagle Merlin spiraled out of control and careened into the side of a mesa about ten kilometers away. Parker felt the back blast as he watched Jar try to pull at the kite, tearing at the ashy paper. But the thread held fast. He landed, almost gently, on top of the being. He tried to stand up, but in a few seconds he was beginning to sink into the being. Jar! Parker shouted. Hang on! Sorry! Jar shouted back, his legs already consumed. He looked down. There's some serious alternate reality shit going on in there he said. Keep fighting, Parker said, but he knew it was hopeless. Jar held up all of his arms and slid into the being. Parker hunched over his motorcycle, his head sinking between the handlebars. About a dozen walking sticks landed on his fur. He ran his claw over the hair, scooping them up and eating them. They tasted like Fritos. Nasty, he said, spitting them out. He started riding again to Santa Fe in silence, with the shriek of the pre-mining operational maneuvers above him and to all sides. He put on his Toby Keefe, but even that wouldn't soothe his guilt. When he saw Santa Fe on the horizon, and the glow of the madrigal lights along the city walls, and the faint thrum of fiddles and cymbals and electric guitars, he became light-headed, and also ridden with shame, which was far worse than guilt. He stopped his motorcycle and revved it, his gills fluttering. At last he thought of Jar, and also tried to consider what his life meant in the end. Screw it, he said, and turned around, back toward the being. About a kilometer away, Parka stopped and took the amulet out of the pouch. He knew, whatever happened, that his diplomatic career would be over. 
He would never be able to set foot in Santa Fe again, and they would in all likelihood hunt him down if he lived. He would likely have to leave the planet he'd grown fond of. Slowly, he slid the amulet around his neck. The walking sticks rose to the occasion, then. Soon there were thousands congregating around him, wedged in his joints and lining his shell. They felt warm and they tickled. The being gurgled in the distance. He remembered, with a sudden pang, what he had forgotten at the time, that the walking sticks were in his joints in much the same way during the kickboxing match. A Camaro pulled up beside him, revving its engine. The boy, Sharon, was driving it. He was still covered in insects. Actually, Parker couldn't tell whether there was a boy there at all. Parker's own insects dropped off him and scurried up the car and through the open window to be with Sharon. Get in, the insect boy said. His voice was deep and unwavering. Parker turned off his motorcycle and parked it. Then he got in the Camaro. He was nearly too tall for it, but he bent his head forward. He saw the sandwich board was in the back seat. How did you get free of your post? Parker said. Liberation takes many guises, Sharon said, revving the engine. Enslavement is the pure heart of industry. All righty, Parker said. Sharon turned toward him. Therefore you shall be the Dwight D. Eisenhower of enlightenment and camaraderie. The Camaro shot forward and Parker fumbled for a seatbelt, but there was none. They were driving right toward the being. Parker was beginning to think this was a bad idea. I have an idea, Parker said. How about we kickbox? If I win, you have to stop the car. The boy ignored him and continued to accelerate. A few of the walking sticks from the boy scurried under Parker's arm. He was too afraid to swat them away. Seriously, he said as much to himself as Sharon. There's got to be some underlying goddamn plan to this endeavor. Sharon didn't turn as he said. Not really, no. They shot toward the being, which was soon their entire horizon. The walking sticks were rattling with the velocity. The amulet was hot against his carapace. Parker closed his eyes. In a blink of his outer eyelid, he expected one of three conclusions to his current predicament. The first involved a high-impact collision against the outer husk of the being, flattening him and the beautiful Camaro. In the second, the beautiful Camaro would puncture the being's skin and come to some kind of high-impact collision inside the being, with any number of farm animals, people, and other physical remnants of the aboriginal civilization surrounding him and either flaying him or welcoming him into a pathetic, intra-being community. In the third... Sharon would halt at the last second, or dodge the being somehow, because he was really trying to mess with Parker's head, which he was doing a spectacular job with already. He missed home all of a sudden, a home he tried so hard to forget, his twenty parents who all had contradictory advice for his well-being, who hated interstellar travel. It won't be long, Sharon muttered, and the being was upon them, and they were upon the being, and the Camaro screamed. It really screamed as it blew through the outer shell of the being, causing an explosion in its wake and argent and vermilion sprays all around the car and strands of being fur flying. The front windshield shattered and the pieces blew away like tiny feathers. And then the top of the car ripped off. They were inside the being, but the Camaro didn't stop. In fact, it seemed to gain an extra level of speed once it was inside. The walking sticks glowed like solar flares or brain gun bullets from a galactic transmuter. Past the blue and green haze, Parker couldn't see much. Shapes moving around that were vaguely aboriginal in form. 
The only things he could see clearly were the local sorcery-powered vehicles that were known as monster trucks. They raced towards the Camaro, dozens of free-floating kites strung to their menacing hulls, but they were far too slow to reach the rocketing black Chevrolet stock car. The inside of the being smelled like ferrous oxide, phlegm, sinew, and transdimensional energy. Before he was able to formulate the thought to look for Jar at all, the Camaro burst through the other side of the being with a roar. More fine, plush, incandescent being fur surrounded them, and then the light grew sharp and bright, and Parker shielded his eyes. When he moved his pincer away from his face, he saw the Camaro was sailing in the air above a deep canyon which the being was on the edge of. I want to warn you, Sharon said, that you might want to brace yourself. The Camaro seemed to be suspended above the dry riverbed far below for a few seconds, then slowly began to arc down. The other side of the gully seemed impossibly far away. The walking sticks, still glowing, began to thrum. And then he touched the button on the center of the amulet, the one forbidden thing. The red rays embedded in the metal burst out, solidifying into strands many meters long, following the contours of his arms. They ballooned out like wings. They were wings. Without really thinking, and it might have been the amulet thinking for him, he stood up and stretched his arms out. The wings were massive, and the Camaro wobbled but righted itself. As it fell, Parker could hear the being on the other side of the canyon shrieking, feel its reverberations around his neck. Parker leaned forward, and the Camaro landed right on the edge of the canyon with a thud. Sharon hit the brakes, and the Camaro spun around. The being was, in fact, in the throes of dying. Eagle Merlins from above were trying to maneuver out of the way, but aquamarine slime burst out of the being like sulfuric geysers and coated the carpet bombers, which spun around and veered wildly. Parker could hear a high, sonorous call from many miles away, the Continental Emergency Siren from Santa Fe. Sharon was still, but then he pointed. The Wormhair Posse was there, gathered around a minivan, each with a brain gun strapped to its arm. You've got to be kidding, Parkas said. He tried to get out of the car, but it was difficult because of his nascent wings. He ended up crawling forward through the glassless windshield and onto the hood. The wings settled around him like a reptilian cape. We want our damn car back, the Prime Wormhair said. It was a different Prime from the one Parka had defeated in kickboxing. The sliding door of the minivan was open, and Parker could see the original Prime in the back of the minivan in a shimmering heel sack. To say nothing about the amulet, one of the key symbols of our people, which you've gone and messed up as well. You know that your corporation is going to hunt you down for triggering dragon mode, right? Parker laughed. Dragon mode. <laughs> That's great! Anyway... You seem to forget that I won the car fair and square. I don't know why you're so upset about that, considering your current sweet ride. We don't care, the Prime said, hoisting his gun at Parka, ignoring the jab about the Honda Odyssey. We just want a souvenir to take with us off-world, he indicated the dying being in the distance. This planet is a cursed cesspool. There's nothing here anymore. But nothing would make us happier than to disintegrate your sorry carapace and take this car into orbit with us. Parker spread his wide wings, which didn't hurt at all, because he thought it would scare them. But it didn't. At all. He sighed.
he realized that sometimes it's the smallest moments that can change a creature's life. He'd given the Camaro to the human as a prize, and had thought nothing of it. But here he was, about to die from the warm hairs after all, and with weird wings. But all the same, he felt good about his generosity, even if Jar wasn't there to share it with him. With that in mind, he wasn't going to back down. Sharon sat motionless, but then he looked in the back seat and started laughing. It was such a quiet, tinny laugh that it shocked everyone into stillness. What? The prime worm hair said, exasperated. There was a red dot on his spiny forehead. Parker stared at it. Will someone please tell me what's going on? The worm hair said. Then there was a whooshing sound, and a crossbow bolt hit the worm hair's forehead where the red dot was. The bolt went through his head, blasting into the front windshield of the minivan. The prime slumped over. Parker turned around. There was someone in the back seat. Hey, Jar said, sitting up, slinging a laser crossbow over his shoulder and looking groggy. Christ on a... Parker said, but he stopped, because he didn't know what to say. Instead, he ran to Jar and wrapped his leathery demonic wings around his friend in a familial embrace. Look at you, Jar said, still sleepily, with wings and stuff. It's the amulet, Parker said. The remaining worm hairs were forgotten, but they'd made their pathetic escape in the minivan. But anyway, priorities, how the hell did you get there? You weren't there all along, were you? Jar shrugged. No, not really. I was in the being, and then... Um, I don't remember much about that. But I saw this sweet Camaro cruising through, and then stop in front of me, and I said to myself, Hey, maybe I should hop on board. So I did. And I must have picked up this crossbow. I guess I was on a shooting range for a while or something. Parker had no recollection of the Camaro slowing down enough for anyone to jump aboard. He disengaged from Jar. I'm just glad you're safe. Well, you came back, friend. That's the important thing. I'd still be in there without you. The tree requests your presences, Sharon said. What? Jar said. Oh, the kid, he's like that, Parker said. He waved towards Sharon. Okay, okay, the tree, but first we need to get a beer. Later that night, Jack Nicholas and Dwight D. Eisenhower and Sharon met for a summit over a few of the local beers. "'How's things?' Jack said. "'Super,' Dwight said. "'Awesome,' Jack said. Sharon was silent. They were in a basement tavern somewhere north of Albuquerque, at a circular table. It was the off-season, and likely everyone in a 500-kilometer radius was trying to flee the potential blast zone of the being, so they had the place to themselves. The beer was warm, but off-worlders didn't care.' Sharon didn't order anything, so Parker had the bartender make him an Arnold Palmer. Toby Keith was playing on the speakers, and everything was all right in the universe, at least for a few minutes. I'm going to miss All Hallows' Eve with the gang, Jar said, but it's a small price to pay. Yeah, it would have been fun. I'm glad we dressed up anyway. You know, I wonder if Eisenhower would have won the war faster if he had wings like yours. It's very possible, Parker said. The amulet against his chest pulsed like his second heart. The walking stick swirling around Sharon clicked and skittered. So what do you want to do after we, your, look at some tree that might very well be imaginary, Parker said. I don't know, Jar said, 
taking a sip of his Budweiser light. It's hard to say. Go back home, maybe? Start over with a new corporation? How about you? Well, maybe I'll stay here, Parker said. I haven't decided. But I like it here. I still have no idea what the hell happened. With the amulet? A little. But mostly with the Camaro. And the being. Ah, that's understandable, Jar said. Parker leaned forward, which was awkward because of his wingspan. What I want to know is, I might not never understand ever what's going on with these walking sticks. But they're trying to say something. Trying to do something. They're trying to survive on this godforsaken planet we... I mean, not us personally. I mean the mining ventures. Suck dry for resource management. And for what? So we can get more fuel for our transmuters to find more planets to suck dry and destroy? Parker was melancholic. But not just for geopolitical reasons. He realized this might be one of the last times of relative normalcy with his good friend. Yeah, Jar said. You make a good point. Maybe I'll stay too. I'll learn how to properly ride a motorcycle and do a wheelie. <laughs> he laughed and then downed his beer. Come on, Sharon, he said. Finish your drink. They rode for an hour in silence through the empty desert. They could see the tree from many kilometers away. A towering, shadowy shape. Sooner rather than later, Sharon wasn't exactly following the speed limit, they could see the enormity of the living structure. Parkas stood up in the car, letting his body poke out the shorn top, letting his wings free. Holy shit, Jar said. The tree was as tall as the highest peaks that the being had desiccated, many kilometers high. And the tree was on fire. Smokeless fire. The tree pulsed with orange light. The branches were leafless, but they spiraled in gargantuan yet intricate patterns. About a thousand meters away, Sharon stopped the car. Everyone got out. The walking sticks encompassing Charon, or perhaps embodying him, were glowing in syncopation with the tree. Then it became clear that the tree was made up of billions of the walking sticks. There were many other abandoned vehicles all around the tree in a ring. Why are the walking sticks doing this? Jar whispered. Parker shook his head, but didn't say anything. He had no idea. Sharon turned to the two of them and said, We need you two. The Dwight D. Eisenhower and Jack Nicholas of Interpersonal Diplomacy to carry a message back to your people. You will relay terms for peace. Sharon began walking towards the tree. Wait, Sharon, Parker said. What will happen if we do? What will happen if we don't, Jar said. Sharon paused for a second and said, My name's not Sharon. Then he began walking toward the tree again. Parker watched him for a little while and looked at Jar who shrugged. Who the hell knows, Jar said. As the general and the golfer followed Sharon to the base of the tree, Parker swore he heard Sharon, who wasn't in fact Sharon, humming a tune, one of Toby Keith's more recent songs about exile on the moon and earthly liberation. Or maybe it was which wasn't meant for a stranger like him. Wasn't for him to understand. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Alan's. Alan, thank you so much. And a big thank you to Logan. Logan, you're a star. So he's done a few for the District of Wonders as well, Logan. So, Logan, thank you again. That is Starship Sofa's show 297. Put well and truly firmly to bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. 
And I hope, like you say, you'll pop over to maybe think about coming over to see SofaCon, where you get to see myself, Amy, and a whole host of other people from the kind of science fiction world, I guess. And, you know, please, donations, that would be fantastic. Think about that. Keep the old girl going over these summer months. Thank you so much. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.